Fifty years ago this week, Gough Whitlam's Labor government was elected and changed a lot of things about Australia, including its foreign policy. The veteran journalist observer Paul Kelly wrote in last weekend's Australian that Whitlam had chosen to change the country's standing in the world, describing the project, on which a young Paul Kelly reported, as Whitlam's, quotes, intelligent anticipation of change. Well, as a key part of that shift, Whitlam was Foreign Minister as well as Prime Minister and several other ministries at the time, all out in the open, I might add, he set up full diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, having made his historic visit as opposition leader the previous year. The date formalising relations was December the 21st, and the man he chose to be our first ambassador was a fairly young academic at the time who'd accompanied Whitlam on that visit Stephen Fitzgerald told ABC News at the time, in 1972, what he thought lay ahead of him. I think we have to remember that this is really only a beginning, that there has been uh, a long period in which we haven't had proper relations with China, except in matters of trade, uh, and that there is a lot of groundwork to be covered before we can establish um, a good working relationship. I don't think there are any illusions on either side about this question. Dr Stephen Fitzgerald from the ABC Archive and I spoke to him earlier to reflect on this anniversary. Good to be here. How should Australians uh, view this anniversary? Uh, uh, how significant is it in your view? Well, I think it's very significant uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one that we've, you know, we've had this 50 years and ups and downs and so on but mainly because China is an extremely important country to Australia. And from the very time we established relations, it has really been uh, a central element in our foreign policy. And so even though towards the end of the previous government, uh, relations took a dive, it has remained uh, a central preoccupation in our foreign policy. Yes, and it's interesting because... Uh, when Australia made the formal recognition of full diplomatic relations, uh, the UK, as I mentioned, had done it as well earlier that year. New Zealand did it straight afterwards. But the United States didn't do that full recognition until January 1979, even though they'd done this big opening up uh, with Kissinger and Nixon, um, you know, <laughs> just after uh, Gough Whitlam. Yes, well, they had it. They had it a bit too, too bob each way, because although they didn't have formal diplomatic relations, they opened what was called the U.S. Liaison Office in Beijing, and the Chinese opened a similar office uh, in Washington. And the U.S. Liaison Office was headed initially by one of their most senior and experienced diplomats, a man called David Bruce. And after he finished, the head of the liaison office was George Bush, who later became, of course, president of the United States. George H.W. Bush. Yes. Um, and so were you conscious then of making history? I, I'm really trying to capture that uh, feeling of the time that, that certainly I think Kissinger conveys very well. And, and if you go back and look at Gough Whitlam, he does too. But, I mean, were you conscious of that? Oh, yes, to an extent that it was 
it was like an exploration into a new territory. I'd been involved, of course, uh, uh, in Australia in the narrative that called for diplomatic relations. I'd been quite involved in the whole debate about our relations with Asia in general and the need to change the way we thought about Asia and to learn Asian languages and study Asian societies and so on. Uh, and so here, suddenly, this had happened. It went against everything that been, had been dominating uh, domestic politics with, relating to foreign policy. That was China, conceived of as enemy and threat. It also, to some extent, went against the established policy of the United States. And so it was not just me. I think the whole team in, in Beijing was, was very conscious of the idea that this was breaking ground and an adventure. An adventure. <laughs> Lucky you. D- did yeah. you have clear goals or was it a bit of a sort of suck it and see, if I can put it in a colloquially? Well, there, <laughs> there was a lot of suck it and see. But the goals were set forth in a, a long uh, letter from Whitlam to me. That was, in those days, ambassadors proceeding on post uh, were given what was called a ministerial directive. And as Goff was his own foreign minister at that time, the directive came from him and uh, it said, we seek a relationship with China comparable to that which we have with the other major powers of the world. Gee. Now, uh, that, yes, and he didn't say comparable to other Asian powers. So when you think about that, that extended to the United States, for example. So that was the broad objective. But mm. once once we were um, on the ground with uh, a small team, it became a, a process of, um, I've, I've described it often as, as making, like trying to put together a, a severed arm. Like you you have to find all the nerve ends and join them up and the veins and the arteries, all the things that go into uh, having a relationship when we hadn't had a relationship for 23 years. Mm. Um, And even though we had a relationship with China before that, and we did have um, a diplomatic mission in uh, Chongqing, which then moved to Nanking. This was uh, when the Chinese nationalists, nationalists were in power. The, It was not really a profound relationship at that stage. So we were really starting from scratch. And all of these things that are normal in a a normally functioning bilateral relationship had to be started. Did did you have access to seriously influential people or not? To some extent, although access was difficult uh, at that time, China was in the latter stages of the uh, Cultural Revolution. There was still a lot of um, very nasty uh, internal politics going on. The the new uh, outward-looking foreign policy was driven by Zhou Enlai, but there were people who subsequently became known as the Gang of Four um, who were uh, deeply opposed to Zhou Enlai and everything he stood for. So this meant that officials were rather constrained in uh, how they interacted uh, with uh, even with foreign diplomats. Right. But notwithstanding that, we managed to establish 
some very good relationships with the foreign minister, Chao Kanhua, with the trade minister, Li Chiang, and with a number of other uh, ministers in, in areas that were of uh, interest to us. I wondered, Sorry. like, I wondered that whether they were uh, so accustomed to being isolated that this was an enormous challenge for them. And, of course, you could say that's pertinent at the moment because they have been rather closed off, particularly through COVID. Maybe that's changing now. Uh, so there's a bit of an analogous situation, well, <laughs> partly analogous situation. Well, it is and it isn't because um, those the two that I mentioned, the foreign minister and the foreign trade minister, they had both studied uh, overseas. The foreign minister had studied in uh, um, in Germany. He graduated from a university in, in Germany. Uh, and the trade minister had studied in uh, the Soviet Union. So they had that knowledge of the, the outside world, if you like. Two in particular found it, uh, I think, really a great uh, pleasure to be able to engage with uh, foreign diplomats. And, and uh, they were both really quite uh, outgoing, and there were others as well. Uh, look, could you have imagined that 50 years on, we would be just emerging, just, from a very, very difficult period in our relationship? So I'm really asking for a little bit of prophecy at the time. Could you imagine it was going to go up and down quite a lot? I couldn't have imagined that it would get to be as bad uh, as it was in the last period of the previous government. I had predicted back in uh, the 1970s, uh, that China would, uh, by the end of the century, become a major power, a major economic power in our region and uh, a huge influence in the whole of our region and also with us. And I had, in a number of dispatches I wrote from uh, Beijing, said that we had to prepare ourselves to be able to manage this giant of a country uh, we had to learn Chinese. We had to get to understand the culture, um, you know, the background, the history, the things that were of concern to uh, Chinese, all of that. And so I, I anticipated that we were going to have to be dealing with a great power. Did you anticipate um, a Xi Jinping and his style? No. No, I, I, I didn't. But I did not believe that some did that uh, China would uh, become uh, democratic uh, like us. I, I was never persuaded by that view. And it has been a surprise to me that, that Xi Jinping uh, has been as autocratic uh, as he has become. But we have to remember that at the time we established relations with China back in 1972, there was an autocratic ruler in the person of uh, Mao Zedong. And yet we, we saw it as important to be able to deal with this country. And that was the basic uh, element. Really. Look, very quick final question. Did you ever meet uh, Jiang Zemin, who died this week at the age of 96? Well, yes, I did. He came to Australia. He came on a visit to Australia. Uh, and uh, I was at a banquet uh, organised by the Chinese community in Sydney was a huge banquet. There must have been two or three hundred people there. And one of the officials with Jiang Zemin uh, saw me sitting at one of the tables away from uh, where the, they were all sitting at the, on the rostrum. Um, and he came over, and I knew him quite well, and he said, uh, you should sing. I said, what? I can't sing here. 
He said, yes, gentlemen likes to sing. <laughs> I, thought, I said, what do you want me to sing? He said, well, this, there's this um, song you used to sing in Beijing uh, called Sailing the Seas Depends on the Helmsman. <laughs> so he more, he more or less dragged me over, introduced me to Jiang Zemin and said that we should sing together. And so we did. We both sang this uh, revolutionary song. So that was my experience of Jiang Zemin. I'm sure he, I'm sure he never forgot it. Uh, Stephen Fitzgerald, uh, thank you very much for joining us on this really quite auspicious anniversary, I think. Thank you. Yes, OK. Thank you very much, Doreen. And I think it was all I could do to stop him singing again. <laughs> I think he rather likes his karaoke singing in Mandarin. Uh, we will be back. Dr Stephen Fitzgerald, our first ambassador to China, will be back after eight with a discussion about renewable energy. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.